Uh, we just heard from 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. <clears throat> and certainly we know that God's Word is inspired, it is without error, but man is not. Uh, and so I'm going to go back and spend a little bit of time again, really continuing where we left off Wednesday night on Bible study. As I talk about man making errors, do let me point out, uh, I did notice that a couple of passages I forgot on your guys' outline. So when you get down to the very last point, uh, I went back last night on my second, third revision, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I forgot that. So I added a few things, and I forgot to out, uh, update my outline. So uh, we'll get to those, though, when we're talking about errors. All right, so as I begin to think about where we left off on Wednesday, I thought I would come back this morning. We're going to spend a little bit of time talking about the inspired writings uh, and how they were placed into what today by many is called the Bible, and we'll spend some time even focusing in on that term a little bit. And we're going to go back and look at really a few specific things that we didn't get enough time to touch on Wednesday, and that would be the idea of what is called canonization, which really is the idea of rule or law, uh, the transmission or the process of copying uh, something into another document, and then we'll cover for a little bit the idea of translation of text. Many of those things we did begin to touch on on Wednesday night, uh, but we didn't spend enough time. So we'll talk also about uh, translation and how uh, going from one text to another does cause some issues. But in doing that, let's go on over first to Ephesians chapter 3, 3 through 6, and when we get done, we'll again talk about canonization, uh, transmission, and translation. Notice what Paul tells the church, Ephesians 3, 3 through 6. He says, How that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in, uh, in few words, whereby when you read, ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body, and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. All right, what's going on here? Paul's writing to his brethren there in Ephesus, and he wants them to understand and to know about the mystery of the gospel. It had been revealed unto him through inspiration, and he basically says, when you read what I write, you can understand what I know. I'm giving it to you in words. Okay, and now with that, when we read what he wrote in Greek and then was translated into English, we can know what the church in Ephesus knew if what was translated from those original documents was translated correctly. Right? And so we want to start off with that idea because here's the question. Well, what if we don't know what it is that he wrote? What if we don't actually have uh, the correct words as to what he wrote? Those are valid questions. Um, that may be a concern, I think, for some based on kind of where we left off on Wednesday night as we were talking about 1 John 5, 7, and 8. Well, let's lay it out very clearly. In order for us, the church today, to know what the first century church knew, we need to have the same knowledge from the same documents that they had. Now, notice I didn't say we need to have the exact same documents, and we're going to touch on that. We don't have the original documents. We just need the knowledge from those same documents. And again, that poses the question, well, then what, what if we don't have what they had? 
Well, should we be concerned that man has come back and tempered, tampered with the, the New Testament scripture? That's a valid question. As I went back and began to, again, research from a different viewpoint of what we were kind of talking about on Wednesday, here's one of the things we can say. Thanks to many of the devoted scholars that came way before us, and I'm talking over the last really 2,000 years, we have all the information that we need to go back and begin to answer some of the questions that we have, and rightfully so, that we should be asking. Let me, let me say this before we go any further. There are people who are not asking this question. They pick up something called a Bible, and they assume that's what it is, right? They need to be asking the same questions that we're asking. We should never be fearful to ask questions. The Bible doesn't need any help defending itself. And so we need to ask these types of questions. Well, we can get a better understanding as we look at the idea of canonization, transmission, and translation. So let's start off with talking about canon. Now, probably not a word maybe that many of you have studied. It's actually a word that is within our scriptures. Uh, and I'll, I'll talk about that here in a minute. But canonization is the process that the early church used to go back and to determine what was the inspired documents. Okay, as we start talking about the books in the Bible, one of the things we need to point off really first is, is inspired documents are inherently authoritative. They are authoritative because they are inspired. Right? They belong in the Bible because they were inspired, and they are authoritative. That's why they're in our Bible. Now, let me make this next statement very carefully. Just because a book is in the Bible, or a Bible, or a version of the Bible, does not make it authoritative. You may be saying, well, that's double talk. No, let me explain what I'm saying. The Catholic Church's Bible doesn't match my Bible. Right? The books in my Bible, they are inherently authoritative. They are in my Bible because they are inspired and they are authoritative. But if you pick up a Catholic Bible, you will notice that their Bible does not match my Bible. They have other books in their Old Testament, specifically the Apocrypha with the large A as opposed to a small A. We'll talk about the small A ones for just a second. But they have additional books in their Bible. Those would include Baruch, Judith, 1st and 2nd Maccabees, Sirach, Tobit, and Wisdom. And I've done great studies on those books, and any of you guys can go back and look at them too. And a simple study will go back and find that in each of those books, there are historical errors, there are geographical errors, and there are doctrinal errors. They're not inspired. They're not authoritative. So just because they are in a Bible does not mean they're authoritative, and it doesn't mean they're inspired. Likewise, though, the ones in my Bible are. They are inherently inspired. They are inherently authoritative. And that's because from the very beginning of the early church, they were accepted as such. And we'll touch on that. Now you may say, well, those Catholics, they put those extra books in the Bible. And I could say that growing up as a Catholic. They're not the only group to do that. There are other groups. And if you go out and maybe you've done some studying, well, let me mention for just a second as uh, we look at other groups that may have done this. And many of you are familiar. The Mormon Church actually has a book called the Book of Mormon, and they call it Another Testament of Jesus Christ. Now, for anybody who's never gone back and, and done any research on the Book of Mormon or knows anything about it, that was a book that was written in 1830, claimed by a man named Joseph Smith, 
But just because the Mormons tell followers of the Mormon religion, this is an inspired book and it's authoritative uh, because of that fact, and it belongs as part of our Mormon canon, uh, it is not, okay? As a matter of fact, for those of you who don't know, and I thought this for a long time until I found this book yesterday. I did not know this. Uh, but as I was going back and double-checking something, for years now, I have, I have believed within myself that the Book of Mormon was written by a man named Sidney Rigdon. Now, if you guys don't know who Sidney Rigdon is, Sidney Rigdon was a preacher for the Churches of Christ in the 1830s. And lo and behold, he, in essence, he never could become, he never could outshine the guys like Barton W. Stone and Alexander Campbell and so forth. And he met Joseph Smith and those two got together. Uh, and he had been an apt, uh, capable gospel preacher before he met Joseph Smith. But long story short, I always thought Sidney Rigdon wrote the Book of Mormon with uh, another book that he kind of tied into it. And as I was going back through and looking yesterday and checking this out, I found out that Sidney Rigdon's great nephew wrote a book and he provides signed affidavits and he provides uh, witness accounts and a bunch of other uh, family documents where Sidney Rigdon admits that he did write the Book of Mormon, that it did not come by inspiration as Joseph Smith claims. It is not considered part of the canon of New Testament doctrine and it was all a fraud and a forgery. Why do I bring all that up? There are people who have gone back and tried to add things into the Bible that, that never were supposed to be there. But just because they do that does not change what is the inspired word of God. Well, there are several questions as we begin to go back and begin to talk about is a book considered canon or authority or rule? Well, let me give you the very first question that we normally ask as we begin to ask. Is this book supposed to be in the Bible? Well, here's the first question. Was this written by an apostle or an inspired writer? Listen to Romans 1.1 and tell me if this book of Rome, Romans uh, should be in our Bible. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. Should that be in the Bible? Well, absolutely. It was written by an apostle. He claims such, and we know he also claims in his writings that he is writing by direct revelation from God. So Romans was part of the canon. It's supposed to be within our scriptures. Here's the next question. Was the document, the book that we're looking at, was it written in the appropriate time frame? Well, let me pause for a second. The Book of Mormon, they say that they are part of the New Testament canon. It's another New Testament of Jesus Christ. Guys, it was written in 1830. Were there any prophets, apostles walking around in 1830? No, sir, there were not. How about the Old Testament apocryphal books which we find in the Catholic Bible? Those books were all written between the 400, time, 400 years prior to the New Testament in which there were no prophets, right? There were no prophets at all. Nothing is recorded from the end of our Old Testament for 400 years to the New Testament, and that's when all of those Old Testament apocryphal books in your Catholic Bible were written. Do they meet the correct time frame? No, they don't. Plus, you can go back and look at both the Book of Mormon, the Apocryphal books. You can go back and look at all those, and you find error, tons of error, doctrinal error, historical error. Here's the next question. Did the early Christians receive the book uh, to be read in front of the church because they knew it was from an apostle or it was inspired? That's the next question. Listen to Colossians 4.16. 
And when this epistle is read among you, cause that it be read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. Well, they were reading it and sharing it with other congregations because they knew that it was inspired. It was direct revelation to God, and it was needed to direct their lives. And so, just as they were commanded, they were transmitting it amongst Christians. That's the next question you have to ask about a book. Another question you need to ask as you're trying to determine, should this book be in my Bible? Does it contain apocryphal language or errors that would show to us that it's not credible? And examples of that would be books that we call apocrypha with a small a, not the big A as the books in the Catholic Bible, but the small a apocrypha. And that would be examples like the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary, things like that. And if you go back and read any of those, I don't know if any of you guys have ever taken the time to read any of those apocryphal books. Interesting to read. I wouldn't really waste my time digging them out just to read them for fun, but I did have some questions, so I went back and read them, and they are full of doctrinal error, contradict our scriptures, historical, geographical error. There's a ton of error in them. Very easy to tell that they are forgeries. Made to look real, but nonetheless, they are forgeries, and many of them we can even tell were written centuries after uh, the last apostle died. Another question asked is uh, whether a book should be in our Bible or not. Was it distinguished from inspired documents as just being a letter or a document of exhortation to the early church as opposed to a letter from an inspired writer? An example of this would be, for example, the letter of Clement uh, to the Corinthians. If any, of you have, if any of you here have never read the letter of Clement, you can get a digital copy of it online for free. Uh, Clement of Rome wrote to the Corinthian church and you can go back and read it and it is an amazing interesting ready uh, letter to read it gives me it gave me a bunch of information about the history of the early church uh, there in the uh, end of the first century because uh, it was written about 70 to 95 AD so towards the end of the first century Clement of Rome who was an elder he wrote to the congregation in Corinth and he talked about some problems they were having but here's the thing None of the early church ever accepted that letter as being inspired. They knew it wasn't inspired. It was simply a letter, and it was there to exhort and to edify and to help that congregation in the matter. And so they didn't look at that as inspired, and it wasn't included in our scriptures. It was written during the, the correct time frame, 70 to 95, which is really when you, depending on how you date the book of Revelation, in the same time frame. But the early church knew it wasn't inspired, and it didn't belong in the Bible. It was just another, it was just a good letter. Here's the last question, or understanding as we talk about those. Um, by going back and answering all of these questions, you had many scholars before us who went back and they, they really could understand and explain that yes, these books do need to be in there, they are inspired, they are authoritative, uh, or no, no, they should not be in there and they were not included. And really, guys, as as we go back and study or talk about this, it has been known really for a very, very, very long time uh, what books should be in our Bible. So let me touch just a little bit further. I'm not going to go back and talk about the Old Testament. That's not my question. Um, Old Testament also has uh, what we would call canon. There are set books that should be in there. I touched on it when I said the Catholics have additional books in there, but that's not my focus today. My focus is New Testament. First, I want to prove to you that there is such thing as canon or canonization. Listen to 2 Corinthians 10, 13. But we will not boast of things without our measure, 
but according to the measure of the rule, let me pause for a minute. That word rule is the Greek word canon. That's where we come, come up with the word canonization, right? He says, but according to the measure of the rule, or the canon, which God hath distributed to us, a measure to reach even unto you. All right, so he's pointing out here that there is a rule or a guideline or a standard, God-given. We see the very same thing in Galatians 6.16. And as many as walk according to this rule, again, that's the word there for canon, peace beyond them and mercy and upon the Israel of God. Why did I use those? Well, there is such thing as canonization or the setting of rule or guidelines or law. All of the books that we have within our New Testament, they were being circulated by the end of the first century. They were considered the rule or the law by which all Christians were to live and they were to be governed. Why? Well, because they considered them to all be inspired and, as I mentioned earlier, anything inspired is inherently authoritative. And so, therefore, this was their rule. It was their law. The Greek word there is canon, canonization. We know for a fact what books were being distributed and looked at as being inspired. This is actually testified by many early Christians and church historians that we sometimes call apostolic fathers. I'm not really a big fan of that term. But these were men that wrote in the very end of the first century, second and third centuries. They oftentimes will go back and they quote directly from what we call now our New Testament manuscripts. An example would have been, as I mentioned earlier, Clement of Rome when he wrote to uh, the Corinthians, as you read that letter, he quotes often from all the original manuscripts. He doesn't say in 2 Corinthians 2, 3, he doesn't do that because none of the letters had um, verses and, and uh, chapters at that point, but he quotes from the, the letters. So we know for a fact what was included in those. Uh, and we have record of that from these supposed, uh, or they're called apostolic fathers. By 367 A.D., the canon of scripture was accepted universally. Now before that, there was a time when there were people who were, who were saying, well, I don't think that this book should be in there or that book should be in there. And you even had that in the Reformation. Uh, there were some who specifically hated and hate the book of Hebrews, also the book of James. Uh, didn't like what they taught, didn't think they should be in there. But primarily as you go throughout time, starting from 367 on, we know what books should have been in there. Uh, and the 27 books that we have in our New Testament, they were already accepted as inspired and inherently authoritative by 367. And they came up with that by going back and asking all the questions we looked at earlier and additional tests to figure out, does this belong within our New Testament? Now, here's the issue, and I touched on it earlier. The original letters written by the original authors, they're gone. They don't exist anymore. Why do they not exist? I'm not quite sure. It could be that they, they, they just were used so much that they begin to fall apart. Uh, I don't know about any of you guys, but you know, as things get older, I get up this morning and my, I, my knee didn't want to work anymore. Things start to break down when they get older, right, guys? Same thing happens with manuscripts, whether it was written on papyrus or whether it was written on, on leather, uh, vellum, animal skin. But whatever they wrote that on, over time, things begin to break down. So whether that's what happened to them, Whatever, whatever uh, whether they, maybe the congregations were fearful, this is actually brought up numerous times, maybe the congregations were fearful that people would actually worship the items themselves, the manuscripts, more than 
uh, appreciate the words that were on them, uh, and they were fearful of that, and so they, they just got rid of them. I don't know what happened to them. You may say, oh, that would never happen. You guys, go back and look at the Catholic church I grew up in. They spend more time idolizing crosses, and if you go over to the, the Holy Lands, you can get pieces of Jesus' cross still. You can still get pieces of the spear they stuck in Jesus' side, right? And then they take those things and they put them in cases and they worship those things. Would that ever happen to the manuscripts if we still had them? Probably. But we don't know what happened to the manuscripts. But whatever the case may be, we have to depend on copies that we have. That's our only choice. Now, let me talk for just a few minutes on New Testament manuscripts and translations. Because this is really where you begin to get into some of the questioning. Well, I mean, how do I know that what I have here is reliable? That's a good question, and everybody should be asking that. Well, the New Testament, it's a little bit different from the Old Testament. As you go back and you look at the Hebrew scribes of the Old Testament, and we've touched on some of this before, they, they copied in such a way that, you know, when a copy was done, they would literally count letters backwards to the middle spot and letters from the front forwards to the middle spot, and if they were off one letter, then they knew they misspelled something. And they were rigorous, and even they made mistakes. Very few, but even they made mistakes. And if you look, for example, at like the Dead Sea Scrolls, you'll see where they literally would take their knife and scrape the leather from the vellum, and they would go back and correct it. And so as meticulous as they were, as we begin to, begin, as we begin to look at some of the New Testament um, copies and the scribes that did those, which oftentimes were initially guys under the authority of the Catholic Church, they used a few different methods and they weren't always necessarily quite as clear and precise and methodical as the Hebrew scribes for the Old Testament. And so they made mistakes. Now I say that saying, I, mean, I left a couple verses off here guys, I made a mistake, so it happens. But with that being said then, here's the question, well, if we know they made mistakes, then how, how in the world can I even trust, trust my Bible? And I hear a lot of atheists and agnostics say, you can't trust your Bible at all. It was written by men. No, it wasn't. It was written by inspired men, and their original documents were perfect. They were without contradiction. They were without error. However, those original documents were copied by men, and they did the best job that they could, and in some of those documents, there are errors. Not all of them, some of them. Some of those errors are things that don't, they don't matter to anybody. They're not doctrinal errors. They're, I missed a Guys, if you read my notes up here and I got stuff written all over, I miss periods once in a while. I miss commas once in a while. I misspell words once in a while. Does that affect the content of my sermon? No, you guys can't even see it. It's worse when I mispronounce something or say what's, what I didn't really mean to say. But there, there are errors in there, and the majority of them, um, they don't affect doctrine whatsoever. So with all that being said, then you say, well, then how do, how do I even know that what I have is correct? I mean, there, there, we know there are some errors in there. Well, we have a whole lot more evidence for the New Testament than we ever had for the Old Testament. Very few people question the Old Testament. Uh, as I mentioned the other day, we have over 5,000, literally 5,800 complete preserved uh, manuscripts or fragments of manuscripts that have been cataloged. Not include, that's 5,800 Greek manuscripts not counting the 10,000-plus Latin manuscripts that the Catholic Church held, not counting the 9,300 manuscripts that are in other languages, such as Syriac and Slavic and Ethiopic and Coptic and Armenian. So we have thousands and thousands and thousands of manuscripts. 
The very earliest manuscript I believe that is cataloged, unless they've come up with something new since then, is a business card sized fragment which comes from uh, the Gospel of John. It's from the very beginning of the second century. So just after the last, roughly just after the last apostle died, depending on how you date Revelation uh, and his death and so forth, within a few years to no more than 30 years. The first complete copy of a single book of the New Testament is right around A.D. 200. So again, about uh, 100 years after the last apostle died. And the earliest complete copy of a New Testament, I'm talking a full New Testament Bible, dates all the way back to, that's the Codex uh, Sinaiticus, that dates to 330 to 350. So within about 200 years after the first apostle, we actually have our first Bible with all the books in it. Uh, and we can go back and those are the earliest documents we have. However, we have thousands of documents. There's actually so much information that all the scholars have gone back and studied, and we can actually know what was in the original texts. We can actually know what mistakes were made and what should not be in the text. Although, if you go back and begin to read some of the higher critics, and anytime you guys see the higher critics, what that really mean is, is they, they don't believe in inspiration and they're really trying to tear the Bible apart. Higher critics will say there's about 400,000 errors within the translated Bible, but what they don't tell you is, is here's what they call an error. There should be a comma, that should be a capital, that should be a lowercase, that should be spelled color with a U, not color with just C-O-L-O-R, like we do, you know, the Europe, European and American difference in words. They count all those as errors. Punctuation doesn't mean anything to me. Spelling errors don't mean anything to me. It does not affect doctrine. So when they say there's 400,000 errors in the Bible, well, they're talking about for the, my daughter's not here, the, the one that lo loves, they all love to read, but the one who's a fanatic about English. Those things are not big deals. Yes, yeah, she'd probably have a heart attack if she knew that there was tons of commas and things like that missed. The critics are really doing that to try to get you to believe that the Bible is not trustworthy, okay? We can be so confident of what was in the early manuscripts that there are very few disputed passages within English translations today, although I will address a few of them here in a second. Although there is little debate regarding what was included in the original New Testament letters, there again are still a number of books that call themselves Bibles, and they do not attempt in any way to remain accurate according to the original Greek manuscripts. Okay? And we'll touch on this here in a few minutes. Uh, in those cases, those books have really attempted oftentimes to change God's word. Uh, but in reality, they don't have any effect on what the church accepted as authoritative. And a good, sample, a good example of this, guys, would be um, the New World Translation. And for anybody who's not familiar with that, that is the, the uh, Jehovah Witness Translation, where they literally just go in and <clears throat> they just change it to say whatever they want and try to misuse Greek... Greek um, uh, rules regarding usage and so forth to support their cause and there's no Greek scholar anywhere that supports a lot of that it's the worst translation one of the worst that's out there so with that being said then we need to touch on translations there are even well-known atheists and agnostics in the past guys like Anthony Flew if you've never watched the debates uh, between him uh, and members of the member of the of the church in the years past, very good to go back and watch. Even he admits that the Bible that we had today matches the manuscripts that we had from the second and third and fourth on, uh, 
forward as far as the manuscripts. Even he admits that because he was he was an honest guy. Supposedly later in his life, before he died, he recanted his position as uh, an atheist. Because even he could go back and look and see that yes, it, the arguments don't make sense. Well, let me talk about translations for just a minute. And I do want to point something out here. Um, I really didn't touch on it Wednesday night, but we have talked about the Septuagint or the LXX before. For those of you who don't know what that is, the LXX or the Septuagint was the earliest Greek uh, translation of the Old Testament. So that was the very first translation where they took the Hebrew Bible and they translated it into Greek. They did that. Uh, in Alexandria, it was actually translated by the 70 scribes or the 70 elders, and that was about 300 B.C. So 300 years before Jesus, the Jews translated their Hebrew Bible into Greek, and the LXX, or the Septuagint, was the Bible of Jesus' day. So they didn't per se have Bibles like this, but you know when they went into the synagogue and they unrolled the scrolls, uh, their Bible of the day would have been the Septuagint, the LXX. Uh, Greek was the common language that everybody read. Uh, they would have had Hebrew scrolls, but their common Bible was the LXX. It was actually created by Jews in Alexandria for Jews. Uh, you got to remember, they're not in Jerusalem. They're in Alexandria. Common language was Greek, so they needed a Greek Bible. Now, here's what I find interesting about that. Jesus' common usage Bible, if he was able to carry one around, but if they had the scrolls, was the LXX. Listen to Matthew 21, 42. Jesus saith unto them, Did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? The same has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now, here's what's interesting. Jesus is quoting from Psalms 118, which had been translated from Hebrew into Greek, and he calls it scripture. Jesus calls Hebrew, quoted or translated into Greek, which is then being read in the synagogues and everywhere else, he calls it scripture. And he does that in the very same way that I can take words that were written in Greek and translated into English, and when translated accurately, I can call them inspired scripture. It's, it's a simple recounting of the exact original words, but it's put into a language so I can understand it. And so just as Jesus called the Hebrew verses translated into Greek, scripture, I can call Greek words translated into English, Scripture. Now, most of us do that, and we don't think about it. But Jesus and the apostles, they did approve of using uh, translation of Scripture, and they considered those translations as authoritative. Matter of fact, when you go back, if you actually uh, look up, I didn't do this for the sermon, but if you go back and look up many of the quotes from the um, that are recorded in our New Testament, if you read where the apostles and Jesus are quoting from the Old Testament, if you go look those up actually in the LXX, it's almost it's pretty much verbatim. It, their quotes match the LXX. Why? Well, that was the Bible of their day. Well, just as we don't have the original Greek manuscripts of the New Testament, they didn't have the original letters from Moses. They didn't have the writings uh, from the letters that Moses wrote. They didn't have the letters from the inspired prophets and the uh, writers of those times. But uh, they still considered that to be inherently authoritative, and they called it Scripture. Now, here's the thing, guys. <clears throat> I wish we had the original manuscripts that the apostles wrote. <laughs> it would be amazing. Um, it would cause a problem. How many of you guys here speak and write Greek? 
for most of us, it's going to be problematic. And even if you can uh, get through it very roughly, <clears throat> which would be my case, very roughly, with a lot of times with a dictionary and looking up all the words, uh, even though I had them, it would, be, it would be problematic. So here's the thing. We have to have somebody who knows the original language, like the LXX was translated by the scribes. They took the Hebrew and they knew the Greek and they translated it. That's how the Jews had their common day Bible. We likewise have to have somebody who knows Greek who can translate it into English, because that's what we read, so that we can have our common Bible. Now here's the good thing. Koine Greek, what they spoke at the time, is a dead language. And not only is it a dead language, we know that it was a very precise language. So here's what we know. It didn't change, the language did not change over time because it's so precise. Uh, and we know that because it is a dead language, it hasn't changed over the years. Now Greek has changed over time. Same as American, uh, it's, it's English. I guess we can't say it, I speak American. Even English, right? English has changed over time. Many of the words we use are not the same as they were used back years before. That's not the case with Koine Greek. It's a dead language, it doesn't change, and it's very precise. So let me talk for a few minutes about English translations. We touched on this Wednesday, but I'm gonna make it a little more clear. How exactly did we get our English translations? Where'd the first one come from? Well, in 1525, we touched on this Wednesday night, William Tyndale produced an English Bible by translating from the Greek and the Hebrew, uh, and then during this process, Tyndall used a number of other manuscripts to aid him, including one Erasmus's 1522 edition of the Greek, uh, as we discussed last Wednesday night. Now, here's the thing about Tyndale. He was a Greek scholar for the most part, but he was not a Hebrew scholar. Remember that. That's going to come back up here in a little bit. He was not a Hebrew scholar. He knew just enough to be dangerous, kind of like, <laughs> kind of like me with a little bit of Greek. I know just enough to be dangerous. And that's about it. And that's exactly what Tyndale was with the Hebrew, although he was excellent with the Greek. So he wrote, he wrote the very first English translation you had. He did the best he could with the Hebrew into uh, the Greek, and <clears throat> he did an excellent job in taking the Greek uh, then into English. And that's how we got our very first English Bible. In 1611, King James actually authorized a translation committee to make a Bible in the English language. That was largely a revision of Tyndale's work. But it also did use the translation by Erasmus, and it also did use the Geneva Bible. Okay, so they had a few references, or a few manuscripts at their disposal. I think Wednesday night I mentioned they had about 15, but primarily they rested on Tyndale's work and Erasmus and the Geneva Bible. And then in 1885, we have the very first major revision of the King James, and that was actually accomplished through a joint commission, a British and American commission, resulting in what we call the 1885 uh, English Revised Version, which later turned into what we call the 1901 American Standard Version, okay? It really started in 1885, well, a little bit right before that, but they came out with what we call the English Revised Version and the 1901 ASV. They're virtually identical. I used to have one of each. I gave the 1885 one away not long ago, and I Wish I would have kept it. Somebody here needed a Bible and I gave it to them. Uh, from that point on, after we had the revision to the King James uh, in 1885 and 1901, we have had since then a number of revisions. We've had a bunch of them. Uh, and so I'm going to touch on some of those here for just a second because that's how our English Bibles came to us today. Tyndale's Bible, the King James Bible, 
King James Bible was then uh, used to make other revisions off of that. And some of the problems in the King James went into some of the other versions made off of that version. Okay. Well, how exactly did they translate those? Well, that's important. There's really three different ways of translating. I'm going to address two of them, and the third one we're not going to, we're going to mention it and move on. Uh, the way that the translator approaches how he is going to look at the text is extremely important because the approach that he uses to come up with what we read is going to it's going to either confuse me or enlighten me pertaining to the will of God. What I mean is, is if, he, if he looks at it one way and he mistranslates, it's going to cause problems for the end reader. Many of the end readers would never ask the question. But here's what we know about translation. Let me, let me read to you what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, 10 through 13. We need, to, we need to address inspiration first. And this is important before I talk about how they translated Bibles or how they do it today. Notice what Paul says, 1 Corinthians 2, starting in verse 10. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of man, save the Spirit of man which is in him? Even so, the things of God knoweth no man, but the Spirit of God. Now we have received... Not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know these things that are freely given to us of God, which things also we speak, not in the words, notice that, which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Spirit's Spirit teacheth, talking about the words that the Holy Spirit teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Now here's what I get from this, and most people are gonna most people are gonna miss this right off the top. Paul says that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and everything we have came through the revelation through the Holy Spirit. The Spirit reveals the mind of God in words, the words that he teaches. In essence, what God is telling us through the Holy Spirit here is that the primary method, the primary vehicle by which we learn God's will is through very specific words. Okay? If we're going to be faithful to God regarding inspiration and trying to live according to what we think he expects us to do, we need to respect and understand and ask about each word in the Bible. Now, you may say, that's, that's an awful lot. Guys, luckily, we have many scholars that have come before us. But every word is important. So with this in mind, accuracy is important. Now, let me talk about the primary methods of how we have our Bibles today. There's really two primary methods of translation. Okay, there's three. I'm not going to really address one. The first one is this, and it's called a literal translation. What I mean is, is when they went from the original language, I didn't mention this in my notes. A translation means I went from Greek to English. I went from Russian to English. That's a translation. Okay. A revision would be the King James. I took Tyndale's work. And I primarily used it, and then I went through and I tried to correct errors. Okay? This is a revision, not a translation. Tyndall's original work went from the Hebrew and the Greek into the English. Okay? When you have literal translations or revisions, that means they are focusing on every single word. And that means that they are spending time actually focusing on each word, 
and trying to find the correct word to put into English. And oftentimes that's difficult because in English we have multiple words for or uses of for words like I should have put down some examples. I'm going to throw this off the top of the hip, but bear rawr, or I got out of the shower. Oh, I'm a bear, right? I need to put a towel on. Same word. Sounds the same, right? Totally different meaning. Uh, and you can look at other words where the word is spelled the same, but has two totally, completely different uses. Okay, that's why it is complicated. Well, when they do a literal translation, they're looking at each word, and then after they translate that, they then have to take all those words and they have to try to make it smooth using the actual words translated correctly into an English sentence. That leads to problems like this, guys. When you say um, in Acts 2.38, the gift of the Holy Spirit, but in the Greek it actually reads the Holy Spirit's gift. One makes it look like he's giving me something. The other one makes it look like it is the gift himself. That leads to a doctrinal issue, doesn't it? Those are the types of problems they have to do when they do literal translations. Examples of literal translations would be the 1611 King James Version or versions. Nobody in here has a 1611 King James. You all have 1769s. Uh, you then had the ASV 1901. You then had the RSV 1952, which was actually a revision of the ASV. You then have the NASB from 1971. That's a revision of the ASV. You then had the New King James Version of 1975 that went back and updated all the antiquated language of the King James. And there's a number of others that I'm not going to go back and list all of the current day literal translations, but there's a bunch of them. And I will say this, every single one of them has an issue. Maybe a very small issue, but they all have issues. Okay. You then have this, you have what's called a dynamic equivalence. That is thought for thought translation. So. A literal translation, the guy's going to go, um, in Acts 2.38, it says baptize. What is the word baptize? Well, that's the word baptizo. What's the word baptizo? That's the word immerse. That's how it should actually be translated in every one of our English Bibles, right? But it's been transliterated. Thought for thought would be Acts 2.38. They're going to read it and go, how would I put that in my own language? And when you do that, they focus on the sentence as the basic unit of meaning instead of the word. And the problem is, is as they go back and they begin to translate the entire sentence at a time, they don't translate the sentence. They read the sentence and then they, they put it in words that seem to flow good. And in so doing, they leave out important words. In some cases, they leave out entire sentences out of our New Testament, entire verses out of our New Testament, and they allow what they think the sentence should read to influence the way that they even translate it into the text. And examples of that would be, for example, the NIV, the New English Translation, or the NET, the Holman Christian Standard Bible. I hear people all the time raving about the Holman Christian Standard Bible. No, no, uh, none, of, none of these that I'm talking about, no. They don't focus on the words at all. They literally just read the sentence and they try to make it as best as they can and make it sound smooth. Also, the New Living Translation. The third one I'm not going to talk about, the third method, I'm not even going to touch on this, is what's called paraphrases. Guys, it's books like The Message, The Cotton Patch. They're, they're nothing more than just junk. They're not reliable. Nobody, if you have one, just throw it away. Use it to heat your house this week. It's not even worth the paper that it's written on. I wouldn't even do a dynamic equivalence, guys. It's just not worth it. Um, let me put it this way. John, who works on cars, and he has manuals, 
that are very precise on how to fix cars. John doesn't want to read my paraphrase of how I think John should work on a car. It's not going to be good, especially when I'm not knowledgeable enough probably to do an adequate job, right? If you guys go back and look at some of the authors of some of these, the Cotton Patch guys, they call like Billy Bob and Jim Bob, and they're going to Nashville, and it's, the, it's a recent gospel with their people's names. That stuff's all trash, every bit of it. So now knowing all this, your question's going to be, well, can I even trust the current version I have? Well, guess what? Only you can answer that, and only you can answer that because we all have different versions. But what I am going to do is go back and spend just a couple minutes, and I'm going to address the version that I have because maybe some of you guys are using that, and that's the King James. And that's where here, I, as we get down here, you're going to notice I did forget one or two passages in, in your notes, so you'll have to write them down. But as you go back and you begin to look at the King James, and one of the first things you have to do is say, okay, it's got some issues. It does. Um, guys, the King James is a wonderful version. Uh, when I think of the Bible and somebody asks me a question, guess what? I want to I, I recite it in the King James. That's what I memorized. Uh, but I do know that it has some, ang it has some issues. Uh, it has some language problems. The, the words are antiquated. However, that's easily solvable by the majority of us who have a dictionary or can look up the Greek online. And I'd say pretty much every one of us here do that. So, does it have some problems? The word problems, we can all go back, not a, big, not a big deal for us. We can look up definitions and things like that. However, for those that use a King James, or for any other version, you need to do this. Yeah, there are some issues. You need to go back. Guys, no matter what version you use, go back and read a scholarly paper on the problems with that version. I don't care if it's an ESV, NASB, King James, ASV, they all have an issue. Read a scholarly paper a couple of them, and they will tell you, go to this passage and review these, and then use other sources like we did on Wednesday night. Does it take time? Yes, it does. It takes time. Uh, it took me a long time throughout the week to go back and look, check this source, check that source, just as it does for this. It takes time, but it's, it's not anything that we can't do. So the King James, yes, it has problems. As a matter of fact, there are insertion of uh, additional words. There are phrases that have been added. There's a couple of transliterated words such as ba baptism, that's not the correct rendering, but that's what they have, it's been transliterated, and you also have some mistranslated words. All right, and I'll touch on one of those today, and that's where I forgot to put your notes in here. Let me, just a second, let me touch back on 1 John 5, 7. This is where this all got started Wednesday. Here's what the King James says. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in earth, the spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree in one. Now, as you go back, and we touched on this Wednesday, virtually every scholar that exists will agree that this is, this is an un, uninspired edition. Somebody added this, and we talked about how it happened. They put the notes on the side there, the Bible, or their translation, the manuscript, and eventually they found it in a 10th, 10th century manuscript where a guy added it in. Looks like for clarity, and then Erasmus did the same thing. But everybody can go back and look at all the original manuscripts and they say, that, that wasn't there. Here's how it should actually read, and this is from the modern literal version. Because there are three who are testifying, the spirit and the water and the blood, and these three are into the one, or they are one. They agree in one. That's how it should read, right? That's not the only issue in the King James. You'll find another one here. Now, this, this next one I'm going to give you, not a doctrinal problem at all. Matter of fact, I think the guy was trying, they were trying to help us out. However, for the studied Christian, they're going to realize this is a problem, and they'll realize why. But it's not a big deal. 
Let's go on over to John 18.5, because this is actually where we read of the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they're coming to arrest Jesus in the garden. And notice, starting in John 18.4, Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, he went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus saith unto, saith unto them, I am he. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with him. Now, the King James Version, when they did this, they went in, and I think it was to add clarity to what was going on. They added the word he after his answer, I am. They made it say, I am he. That's not what the original manuscript said. That's not what Jesus said. They asked, he asked them, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus. And he said, I am. I am is the name that God gave to Moses when Moses asked, who do I tell him sent me? And he declared back there, this isn't in your notes, Exodus 3, 14 and 15, he said, tell him I am that I am. And that is exactly what Jesus told them when they came. And the idea behind that is, and again, this isn't a doctrinal issue, but you miss something when they changed it by adding that word. Jesus was declaring he indeed was God in the flesh. And not only that, he was the God of the Old Testament. If you go back and read that account, they dropped to their knees. Well, when they added the word he, they covered that up. But here's the thing. I went back and looked in the MLV, and guess how they have it translated? They translate it from the MLV as, I am he, but they have he in italics. And the idea is, is they want me as a reader to know they added that word for clarity. It's not in the original manuscript, but it's still in there. Now, I do appreciate that they put it in italics, but they really did the same thing. And for those who haven't read the preface of the MLV, they wouldn't know that that word was added. At least the MLV writers do put it in italics so you know. But here's my whole point. That doesn't change anything. That's not a doctrinal issue. I already knew that Jesus was God in the flesh. I already knew that Jesus was the God of the Old Testament. I knew he was part of the Godhead. So that word he there by the King James people, it didn't, it didn't cause an issue at all for me. Finally, here, I should have mentioned this, and I didn't, and this isn't in your notes. Write down Acts 12.4. And we have to do this because today is Easter. Listen to Acts 12.4. And when he had apprehended him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four quaternions of soldiers to keep him, intending after Easter to bring him forth to the people. Now you say, they didn't celebrate Easter at this point. How in the world did the word Easter get into the King James Version? Well, you guys remember when I said Tyndale was not a Hebrew scholar? And Tyndale is the very first English translation. He took the Old Testament from Hebrew into English. He took the Greek New Testament into English. Well, he was not a Hebrew scholar. He admitted that. He did not know the correct word for Passover, and the word he used was Easter. Now, when the King James Version writers got together, they used Tyndale's work, and they used Erasmus's work. They realized that he made a mistake and used the word Easter, and they actually changed it uh, in John eleven fifty five when they made the King James Version, but they missed it in Acts 12.4. They made an error. And you may say, well, how in the world could they make an error? My wife will tell you I had, to, I had to fix two errors. I had to reprint page one and page five of my lesson because when I went through it a second time, I'm like, oh, uh, I didn't get the right books of the Catholic Bible because I should have looked them all up, but I wrote them out. Error. Had to, re had to fix it, reprint page one. Then I got to page five last night, and I'm like, oh, another error. I should have put in here with Easter. I didn't put it in my notes, but I wanted to. Had to go in and add it, reprint it. Forgot to do that. So how did we get the word Easter in our King James? Well, they caught one of Tyndale's heirs, 
they themselves made an error by not correcting the other error from Tyndale. So, as far as the King James goes, that's pretty much your biggest errors, except for, yes, it does have some antiquated words. There are some copyist mistakes. Yes, there was a good-hearted attempt to actually, uh, for the reason of clarity, to go back and to uh, modify one of the passages to make it more understandable. But you're not going to find many versions better than the King James Version. Uh, but through knowing the process of what we call canonicity, transmission, translation, I can know that the original texts of the Bible are known. I can also know that through the knowing and understanding of the weaknesses of men, I need to choose a very good translation. I need to know what's wrong with that translation in and of itself or that version in and of itself. And then I need to have a secondary source in case I do find issues. And guys, as I said earlier, it's a lot of work to go back. It is a lot of work when we find issues. There are not really that many issues. There are a few. Some translations are much worse than others, and you're going you're to have to spend a lot of time. Uh, but pick a good translation. Know what, it's, know what its problems are and do your research and go from there. But for the most part, many of the old standard versions and translations we have, they're, they're excellent. They just they need a little bit of uh, understanding before you use it as your primary. That's my concern is that we have an understanding that, yes, the Bible is trustworthy. Uh, as it has been given through man, there are some small spots where there are errors, copies. The word was given without error, but men make mistakes. And so we just need to know where those mistakes were made as we have the inspired word of God in our hands. If there's a way we can help you in any way today as we draw this to a close, we would love to do that. And, and that would be primarily two different ways. One, you've not obeyed the gospel and you need to. Very simple to obey the gospel. We want to teach you about Jesus and who he is and why he came. That's how faith comes by hearing, Romans 10, 17. And that's because we want you to believe, Hebrews 11, 6 and John 8, 24. We want you to believe in Jesus, have an understanding of the church, have an understanding of sin, so you'll repent of your sins, Luke 13, 3 through 5. And then we want you to confess Christ, Romans 10, 9 and 10, so you'll also be immersed in water for the remission of your sins. Acts 2.38, Mark 16.16, 16, and a number of other verses. If you need to obey the gospel, we'd love to assist you that way. Uh, if there's a way that we can help you in another way, such as prayers on behalf of, of you or your family or so forth, we could assist you in that way also. In either case, you can come forward as we're led in a song of invitation.